and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor at Horse and Hound. So this week's podcast is a very special one. We are wishing the Horse and Hound podcast happy birthday. Yes, our very first episode was out on the 4th of June last year, so we are one year old this week. And we're so pleased with how you've all engaged with the podcast. We've had over 115,000 downloads in total. The most popular episodes at the moment have had over 3,000 downloads each, and they're the ones featuring Charlotte Dujardin, Pippa Funnel, Amy Phillips, Tim Price and Laura Tomlinson. So do go back and listen to those if you haven't heard them before, or indeed any of the other 52 episodes. This week, our guest interviewee is dressage rider Alice Oppenheimer. She'll be talking about breeding versus buying horses and much more. You have to be able to adapt and learn to ride the horses that you've bred. It is a slightly different way of riding, being able to adapt to what they are as opposed to pick horses that suit you. I'll be chatting to our news team about why COVID restrictions are causing problems for competitors wanting to travel internationally, making strides in diversity and equestrianism, and why older lorry drivers need to check the small print on their licences. Finally, we'll hear from trainer Jason Webb, who'll be giving advice on teaching horses to stand still while being hosed. Sometimes it's the simple things that can create so much frustration, and yet so many people tolerate this, and there really is a simple answer to solving this problem. So that's enough from me. Clip up your hat strap and let's get going. And welcome to this week's guest interview on the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Polly Bryan, dressage editor at Horse and Hound. And I'm so happy to be joined this week by the very lovely Alice Oppenheimer. Hi, Alice. Hi, Polly. Alice is an international Grand Prix rider who has a seriously impressive record. She has 16 national titles, her name, and 47 regional titles. She also has a very exciting string of homebred horses coming up the levels from the Hebmore Studs. Most recently, Alice has made a really exciting return to international Grand Prix with Hebmore Darabinho, aka Robin, after five years away from top-level international dressage. Alice, tell me how it felt to be back riding at a CDI again last week at Wellington. Do you know what? It was, it was a really amazing show at Wellington because Wellington is obviously a local venue for me and I compete there quite a lot anyway. And I was like, oh, we're just popping up the road to Wellington. It won't feel like a CDI because it's, you know, it's Wellington. And I go there a lot. And then I got there and I was like, oh my God. So I actually was surprisingly nervous to get back in the ring at that level. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I was really pleased with how Robin went and, you know, for where he's at and, it was really enjoyable and it was just nice to be doing that level again. Yeah, I can imagine because you, you were competing sort of across all across the world, weren't you, back in sort of 2015, 2016. And then you had a bit of a gap while you brought your upcoming horses through the levels. And of course, a lot of riders will know that it can be quite frustrating to take a step back from the very top, knowing that you will get there, but still having to be patient. Yeah, totally. Like in obviously 2015 and 2016, I had Delegate or Dell um, and I mm. had some amazing experiences. I got, to, you know, I went to Doha and that was the most amazing show and one that I is on my list to totally do again. I competed in Hagen, I did Nations Cup and all that sort of stuff. And we were long listed for Rio. So I had that real sort of Olympic buzz thing. Um, and then, you know, that was beginning of 2016. I had another Grand Prix horse as well. 
Bodicea and then yeah. both Dell and Bracken moved on and I went into 2017 from having two Grand Prix horses to having no Grand Prix horses and it is quite a scary place to be because you know it's, it's it takes a long time to produce a horse to that level yeah um and it was totally the right thing for both horses to move them on you know Dell did some amazing things with Becky Edwards you know he went to the Unride Europeans with Becky and he got a team bronze at the M25 Europeans with Becky and more recently, Ruth Hole had some great fun with him and he's now with a junior rider, Chloe Hill. So for him, it was Brilliant. totally the right decision. You know, he didn't want to do top level Grand Prix anymore and he's having a whale of a time teaching some of the younger riders in this country and stuff. So it was totally the right thing for both horses, but it is still quite, quite a scary place to be because yeah. you never know when the next one will be ready. Of course. And the majority of horses that you ride now are homebreds, aren't they? Bred by yourself and your mother, Sarah, at Headmore Studs. Just tell me a bit about how you sort of got into breeding and, and about some of the horses you've brought up during, during that time. Yeah, 100%. I mean, we sort of, mum accidentally fell into breeding. She, um, there's a, a state just up the road from Headmore called Rotherfield Park. And it was run by a, a chap called Sir James Scott. And he used to hunt a lot and mum knew him through hunting. And one day he went hunting, came home early, didn't feel very well. And he actually passed away that night. Oh, gosh. And his hunt mare was a lovely thoroughbred mare called Goldie. And his family didn't know what to do with the mare because he had absolutely adored the mare and they didn't want anyone else to ride her. So mum was like, oh, I'll have her and I'll breed from her. And that's sort of how we fell into breeding. Oh, wow. And initially mum, well, I say we, mum, I was at primary school. <laughs> I can't take any credit for this. <laughs> and um, mum started breeding some eventers, a couple by Hot Rumour and a couple by, no, one by Hot Rumour, I think, and one by Leonard, which are really old-fashioned stallions now. But that's what she started with. Mm. And then at the time, Darren Matthew and Suzanne, now Lavendera, were just up the road from us at Cedar Stables. And mum used to work with Darren and knew him quite well. And when they imported DiMaggio as a two-year-old, Darren rang mum and said, oh, you've got to come and see this two-year-old colt we've just imported. I think he's unreal. Oh so mum popped, like literally they were 10 minutes away, mum popped over and was like, oh my God, I've fallen in love with this, this colt. He's called DiMaggio, I'm going to use him. So when he turned three and started covering, we were one of the first people to use him in his first year. Um, and that was... That was on, on the thoroughbred mare and that created Headmore Donato, who was owned by Nicky Morris and is actually the dam of Maeve Morris's Headmore Footloose, who's won a lot of national titles. So that's yeah. how we went from mum sort of fell into breeding and then met DiMaggio and fell into dressage breeding. And when I was sort of 10 years old, uh, mum was quite ill with breast cancer. And so she had a horse at the time called Tecapo II, or Dexy as he was known. And... Kate Smith was competing him and so I when mum was ill I used to muck him out before school and then when Kate came to ride him I'd tack him up and watch Kate ride him and I remember we were at the winters at Solihull and Kate and Dexter won a class I think I think it must have been like the elementary free or something this is going way back this was in 2001 okay and I turned around and I said to mum oh one day I want to be able to do what Dexie does because I was like Aww. 10 or 11 <laughs> sounds sounds really corny but you know that's so so that's how we sort of started to fall into dress though so mum that's when the similar time as mum met DiMaggio and that's when we went from or she she went again I'm saying we I can't claim any credit for the breeding <laughs> um mum went from the sort of more eventer types which is what mum had always done towards the dressage types and so it just sort of went from there and Ruben Steiner who's the dam of a lot of them yes I was, was going to ask about Ruben yeah, Steiner <laughs> she, we initially got her from Julie Devil at Half Moon Stud 
with the intention of me bringing her back into work and actually competing her, but we just couldn't, she'd, she'd been in work before and then she'd had an injury. So Julia bred a couple from her, but we just never got her quite right. Mm. Um, and so mum was like, well, I might as well breed from her. And here we are. She's been an amazing mare for you, hasn't she? She actually oh, won the, the Horse and Hound Outstanding Mare Award in 2019. Because like you said, she's damned to so many of your, your really lovely horses, including yeah. Robin, I think. Yeah, she Robin. Yeah. Mm. Robin, Davina, Dylan, Tank, who I previously took to Grand Prix, Bella. Um, and then there's some younger ones that haven't been seen out yet, but are also super super talented so yeah she's amazing amazing mare amazing um just tell me a little bit more about robin's journey he sounds like such an exciting horse to watch out for over the coming months and years but how has his sort of path to grand prix been has he been has he been tricky to get up to that level or has it been quite straightforward uh yeah i'm not gonna lie he has not been easy (laughs) um he's a very big horse with a lot of power and there has been many many a time when i've said to many people that i didn't think i was the right rider for him and i thought he was too much horse for me and i wasn't sure that i'd actually ever really get there um he's he's done very little competing on the way up the levels because of his size um but equally he's also quite a nervous horse so in you know in hindsight maybe he should have done more competing but we didn't feel physically he was ready yeah um so it's been for him and for me it's been a real journey with that horse and I've always hugely believed in his talent. Like he's always, from the moment I I backed him, from the moment I backed him, like the scope of movement is unreal. He has so much freedom through the shoulder and so much reach in front. Um, But where I've had to really learn and progress myself as a rider and also in my my rider fitness is learning how to manage that. Because with all that scope and power, with every stride, he'd get away from me a little bit. So actually being able to control it has been a huge challenge and it's taken, you know, I always say it's taken an absolute village for me to get that horse where he is now. And like the horse is, like I said, hugely talented, but I've had to learn so much and I've had so much help from so many people with him. And I I wouldn't be, he wouldn't be doing what he's doing now without everyone that's helped me along the way. You know, it's been a massive jigsaw to work him out and for me to learn to ride him and the help I've had with him to enable me to learn to ride him and so yeah it was mm. it was really special I actually felt quite emotional at Wellington like you know when I went in for the trot up and they were like oh you know Alice Oppenheimer with Sarah Oppenheimer's head more Darabinia and I was like this is Wellington just up the road why am I feeling so emotional about trotting this horse up at his first Aww. CDI but like those two tests at Wellington were like I mean it's the start of his Grand Prix journey but it's the culmination of you know nine years of training he's 12 now yeah and it's yeah it was quite special i can imagine oh my gosh and of course being a homebred as as obviously we've said so many of your horses are that must make these journeys so much more extra special i imagine having known these horses literally their whole lives yeah it's so so special so when uh in 2019 uh robin Davina and also Finn, who's had more affinity, he, they all stepped up to Grand Prix that year. And it was just amazing to have these pictures of them as foals. And like I put on my Facebook like a picture of the three of them as foals. And then I'm like, and now look, they're doing Grand Prix. Like it is really special. And I think the relationship we have with them, like we know them like the back of our hands. And, you know, I, you know, I love my horses and I can walk around the corner and I like, you know, if I walk round to where Bella's yard, she straight away picks her ears up. If I walked into Robin's yard, he, he puts his ears up. There's like this real special sort of 
rapport that you get with them. And I yeah. think because they're all related, all of the Ruby ones, they do have quite a lot. They're different, but they're similar. Um, but they're very affectionate horses, all of them. And that sort of rapport that you get with them is is quite special. So, yeah, it is, a, it yeah. is amazing and it's a huge journey. And another part of producing horses that you breed, like if you buy a horse, you can pick what you want. Of course. And you can try the horse and yeah. you can be like, well, I, I, you know, I don't want that one because I don't like the hind leg or, you know, I don't want that one because it's a bit tricky in the connection or, you know, that one's yeah. not supple enough or whatever. But when you breed them you have to be able to adapt and learn to ride the horses that you've bred. So it is, a, it is a slightly different way of riding in a way. It's being able to adapt to what they are as opposed to pick horses that suit you. Yeah, that's so interesting. Have, have there been any horses that have really surprised you from having seen them as foals and maybe had a certain idea about them or what they might be like as they've grown up that have actually turned out very differently? Yeah, I think definitely. I mean, Robin was spectacular as a foal. He was champion colt at the Hanoverian show and he always looked pretty special. But Bella was the ugliest foal you've ever seen. Like She, <laughs> she actually looked like a calf. And that's Bella Ruby. Yeah, Bella, Bella Ruby. Ruby. Yeah. Whereas oh, now <laughs> she is just, she's just outstanding. I love she's that mare. She's beautiful. <laughs> oh, I just adore her. And I remember when she was first back, Ryan Shannon backed her for us and we brought her home and I got on her and I'd done two strides of trot and I said to mum, this horse is unreal. I'd literally done two strides of trot and I said, she's amazing. And mum, we tried to sell her because I was like, oh, she was, I don't like her. She's And I threw my toys a little bit and I was like, I want to ride her. <laughs> and she's just like, she is amazing. But as a foal, she, she was very average. Um, yeah. That was why we didn't really go back to Bellissimo initially. We've since learned that Bellissimo doesn't tend to make very impressive foals. You have to wait until they're under saddle and then they really, really shine. Because as ridden horses, their work ethic and their the connection is really easy and the suppleness is very natural. And there's so much about them that's so wonderful, but you have to get them under saddle. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, she's probably one. You know, the DiMaggio's always make, they always look very spectacular as foals and... Um, we've had you know, some of Ruby's have been very impressive looking foals, but Bella just wasn't. <laughs> Whereas now she's like, she's, you know, she's nine. She does everything for the Grand Prix with ease. Um, and she just needs to do a bit more competing where COVID sort of knocked her and her confidence course. a bit in the ring. She's not done enough, but the, like all the talents there. But as a foal, you wouldn't have looked twice. So exciting. She's at uh, pre-St. George level now, isn't she? Competing? Yeah, she's small yeah. tour, yeah. Small oh, tour. lovely. And what horses do you have that are sort of coming up the levels, uh, the lower levels that, that, you know, people might not know about? So I've got a really lovely Totalas six-year-old that belongs to Rebecca Hume. Um, and she's she's just doing Novice Elementary at the moment. What's um, her name? She, well, it's her, it's her competition name. Toto's okay. a stable name. Um, and she... She, I would say she's just doing novice elementary and you know I said I said to Becky the owner I said I, I'm going to tell you now she's not going to win at novice elementary but my god she shows talent for the Grand Prix right um so she she's going to be really exciting like I, I think I'll be she'll be one once I'm in a tail coat she'll really start to shine mm. um and then we've got a couple of ruby babies so we've got six-year-old Fred who's head more Flintstone he's quite big he's not done very much he's very big he's actually bigger than robin so we're sort of not really doing it we're just letting giving him time to mature but he how big is that have you had a stick on him well i call robin 15 2 from the knee is what i call robin because <laughs> <laughs> it makes me feel better so yeah no we haven't um we just look and i'm like i know he's slightly bigger than robin because when i get on him i have to put my foot ever so slightly higher to reach Aww. the stirrup so i know that's how i know he's bigger than robin 
Um, but again, he's like he's got a lovely brain, right. and has really good mechanics for just training up the levels. But like I said, with his size, we're not you know we're not going to rush him. And then we've got um, Ruby's five year old, who's Val Valentina, and she's the one that got nine point seven at the Futurity as a foal. Um, she will hopefully one day be quite special. She shows a lot of talent, but she is not so straightforward. Um, she's not horrible, but she's one of those, everything has to be perfect. You know, she's okay. a real chestnut mare. <laughs> so it, yeah, she is. So she's just one of those, like, I just need to take my time with her and she's getting yeah. better all the time. And I get glimpses of this ridiculous trot that's phenomenal, but she only do about four strides at the moment. <laughs> and so she she will hopefully one day be exciting, but I can't say when she's going to be ready to compete. Oh, yeah, well, I guess it's all about patience, isn't it? And Yeah, uh... totally. And I'm very like, every horse is different. And I like, you know, if they're ready to do the young horse classes, I will totally do the young horse classes with them. But if they're not ready, they're not ready. You know, it's great experience if they are, but you can actually knock their confidence by doing them if they're not ready to do them. And we've always said, you know, our aim with these horses is Grand Prix. Yeah. And if that means, you know, if they don't compete till they're six, seven or eight or whatever's the right time for them to go out, then so be it, really. Yeah, yeah. Um. So, yeah, that's always been our sort of ethos with them. Yeah, that's really um, important. Speaking of uh, speaking of patience, I know you've um, had another big goal that you've been working towards and having to wait a lot longer for than you originally planned. You are set to run the London Marathon in October, fingers crossed, aren't you? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say goal is the right term. <laughs> I would say I sort of I sort of fell into it by accident. <laughs> um, it was never on my bucket list. What would I call it? Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of the right word. Punishment, maybe. <laughs> Um, challenge <laughs> yeah it's definitely a challenge so yeah i'm hoping it will go ahead this time i was obviously due to run it last april and then obviously a slight issue of a global pandemic got in the way of that yeah um so last year i got as far as uh, got up to the half marathon and i'd done a half before lockdown hit and everything went pear-shaped so yeah i have just forced myself to start running again but i've just i'm quite at peace with the fact that you know I just need to put the miles on my legs and I don't need mm. to, you know, for me, it's not about the time. You know, people say, oh, I want to do a sub four hour marathon. I'm totally never going to manage a sub four, ma four hour marathon, <laughs> even on a bike. So <laughs> I'm just not designed for long distance running. You know, I always say for people like, you know, thoroughbreds are designed for long distance running. I'm more of a cob. So, you know, I, I will just, for me, the challenge is getting across the finish line. It's for yeah. such a great cause. Yeah, you're running for Brooke, is that right? Yeah, 100%, mm. yeah, running for Brooke, because I've done quite a lot of work with them since I visited India in right. 2015 with Charlotte, and I saw their work Charlotte out there. Yeah, 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 so I've done quite a lot for them, and I just sort of fell into it by accident, really. Well, best of luck with the marathon. Like you said, yeah, you've thanks, got a crazy <laughs> busy summer with uh, with all sorts coming up. Um, a very, very busy dressage calendar for you and, and many others as well, which is wonderful after all this time of um, enforced downtime. Thank you so much, Alice, for coming on the Horse and Hound podcast today. It's been so great to chat and find out some more about your lovely horses. Best of luck and Thank see you, you soon. Thank you for having me. So I'm joined today by two members of our Horse and Hound news team. First of all, our news editor, Eleanor Jones. How are you, Eleanor? 
Yeah, all good, thank you. Apart from being a bit aching and feeling like an old woman because I've managed to fall off in my lesson on Sunday, which is always a bonus. <laughs> oh no, how did you do that? <laughs> it was all my own fault because I was trying to cheat because my uh, instructor was making me do some quite difficult lines and I thought I'll come in a bit far on the outside to give myself more room and, and it didn't happen. Well, I did give myself more room, but onto the floor <laughs> rather oh. than over the jump. <laughs> <laughs> That's not ideal. And we also have with us our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. Lucy, you were out reporting last weekend, weren't you? I was. I had had the most wonderful time at Houghton. I I can't tell you how lovely it was. The sport, the setting, the people, the level of the competition and just seeing seeing a few crowds back as well. It, it was wonderful. Great. And who were the riders on form there? Remind us. So, I mean, the quality of the field, it, it never ceases to amaze me. And I think this every year, just about when I come back out reporting, I think, goodness me, the quality has gone up again this year. Uh, but Ros Cantor was on absolute top, top form, showing why she is world champion, just the coolness of her head. And she cantered into that final day of show jumping in the lead in both three star long sections and both times just the most foot perfect round with one time fault on each of the horses you know she doesn't let anything get to anything flapper at all it was it was wonderful to watch and then actually the other riders that stood out to me um we saw oliver jackson win the under 21 section with victor crumb and he's only 19 and he was second to Roz in one of those three star sections and he looked so mature in his riding and there was a really lovely moment afterwards as well with his horse where he um he just went to sort of say thank you and well done back at the collecting ring when he came out so that was lovely we saw Emma Emily King, um, it is definitely her turn to have some luck. Beautiful rounds again, two beautiful jumping rounds. And um, she's recently back from breaking her hand and he slid over actually when he was in the lead at um, Osberton at Thorsby uh, last autumn. So that was wonderful for them to get that win, which they really deserved. And then there are a few others that was, again, just lovely to see out and about. We saw DHI Luperson and Holly Woodhead back. They were 10th and that horse has been such a wonderful campaigner with her. Uh, wonderful to see them back. And then we had Little Fire and William Foxpit winning the four star but again, it was just the quality the whole of the whole event, everyone competing. I've, I think I just smiled for about 12 hours on Sunday, if I'm honest. Oh, it sounds good, yeah. I was surprised when I saw that William had won that class because I, I think he himself would say that he's not really a four-star short expert. And I was actually driven to go back and look up when he most recently won a four-star short, to which the answer was 2017, I think, mm -hmm. so four years ago. And as you say, DHI Luperson, that horse who really kick-started Hollywoodhead's senior career, she was on the senior squad at the European Championships at Blair Castle in 2015 with him. And they've both had a bit of time out for one reason or another since then. And it's really great great to see him back out and about thank you lucy well i got out to a little sort of competition earlier in the week i had bank holiday monday off um and went to an event as practice day which was a really great opportunity to uh, get out in a very low pressure way i thought the format it was at lodge farm and i thought the format was excellent you could really sort of treat it as a competition and ride all three phases as a competition if you wanted to but there was also some flexibility so for example i rode the 80 show jumping because that's a phase i find more difficult and then rode the 90 cross country course and it was really great to have the opportunity to do that bearing in mind that I haven't counted a circle on grass since last October or jumped across country fence since then. So it was a really good way of getting back into it. And I did keep the horse between me and the ground at all times, Eleanor, which I always <laughs> consider to be a mark of success in any day's eventing or uh, nearly eventing. That is always the first tick in the box. <laughs> it is. Sometimes when things go really wrong, I say, well, at least I get the horse between me and the floor at all times. <laughs> 
Aim the game. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think we should get on to the serious news. Lucy, this is a story that you and I have both been following, and it's around travel to international events with COVID, and particularly around the German five star at Le Moulin. Can you give us the background on this one? Yes. So the background is that Le Moulin is it's obviously the first European five star of the year following the cancellation of badminton. Um, and it, well, it's got an absolutely stellar entries list. And there's dozens of British and British based top riders entered who are hoping to go across, you know, and enjoy that first five star run of the season. But restrictions, which are effectively a travel ban on anyone that's been in the UK in the previous 10 days, except in like really, really limited circumstances on people coming into Germany, started to trickle in. And then we have since heard from the event that there will be no exception to those rules for riders. And in fact, it's not just equestrian sport, but at the moment it's also affecting athletes across other sports too. So it is, it's quite frustrating. Mm. And does it look like any British or British-based riders will be able to get to Le Moulin with that ban? Or is there sort of anyone still looking into it and trying to find a way to, to make it work, Lucy? It looks like there could possibly be a few. So it's no means at the moment a hard, no, there's going to be no British-based riders there. But I mean, speaking very generally here about the rules, but the biggie is that they can't so you can't have been in the UK or a place that's on Germany's area of virus variants of concern list, which the UK is at the moment, in the last 10 days. So, and again, rules do seem to be changing a lot, as we know, with COVID all the time. So right now, it seems that if a rider can find a logistical solution that involves spending time in another country before travelling to Germany uh, to sort of fulfil that 10-day sort of quarantine stay, if you like, and of course complying with all the rules that go with that, which I know everyone is doing. This isn't a case of people are thinking the rules don't apply to them in any way at all. Then, you know, there, there could be a way. I've heard chatter over recent days about people are looking at the situation and looking at their own options and making the best plan for them and their horse. But it is all still quite early days. I caught up with British Equestrians Eventing Performance Manager Dickie Waygood while I was while I was actually out and about reporting at Houghton um, to see if if there are going to be any Brits going. And he said that we may see one or two, but the reality could be that it might not be feasible when they really look into it. And we do know that Bicton is doing all it can to accommodate people who are planning on running there instead. And of course, there's a lot of people on the Lemoulin entries list that are double entered at Bicton or even triple entered with Mill Street as well. But I mean, it's frustrating. Um, I'm aware that Tim and Janelle Price are among the among those looking at the possibilities and the horses that they are entered on include their 2018 and 29 winners. But again, things are changing all the time. So I think it's up in the air at the moment. And I really do hope that some do manage to find a way. I've certainly got everything crossed for them. Mm, and you mentioned Mill Street in Ireland there, Lucy. Looks like riders will be able to go there. What are the arrangements around that event? So Mill Street, like Ballandenisk, um, has got a bubble situation set up because Ireland as well has travel restrictions, which to an extent affect the UK and people that have been in the UK. But this bubble situation means that top riders will still be able to travel from Britain to compete. And again, there's very strict rules that go with that involving testing and keeping people separate so there's no crossover of British and Irish rider, British and Irish based riders, if that makes sense. Um, but it's brilliant to see how it can work safely, as it did at Ballandenisk. Um, we saw something similar in reverse at the Cheltenham and Aintree festivals, and it shows that it can be done. 
Mm. And there are new restrictions in France, which may affect riders traveling as well, aren't there? Yeah, absolutely. So France too has new travel restrictions that came into force on the 31st of May. And these aren't identical to the German rules, but they are very restrictive. Um, and we know that Le Ball in the second week of June is Britain's second point scoring leg in the newly rejigged allocations of the FEI Nations Cup series. Um, so again, I know that British Equestrian is working with UK Sport on this. As, as I said before, it's not just riders, but wider sport as well. So again, everything crossed that we managed to find a sort of safe and workable solution for, for our top athletes to, to be able to go and compete there. Mm, all so challenging in the build-up to Tokyo and the European Championships later in the year. And I also just feel sorry for sort of younger riders and amateurs who maybe have one horse that's reaching the top level. And, you know, especially if it's an older horse that might not be around at the end of this year or next year. And you feel like this is your chance to get to five star. Maybe you've already missed a year last year with that horse. It's um, gutting for them as well as for our really elite athletes. It is. And I know we, we know with five star horses, some horses are out and out five star horses that is that is what they do that is what they're good at so and they don't have forever at the top and we just hope that that they're able to find a way to a way to, to get those to get those important runs hmm. Thank you, Lucy, for filling us in on that one. Eleanor, you have been looking at strides which are being made to increase diversity in equestrianism this week. Who have you been speaking to? Yeah, so it's really interesting, something we've been covering for a while. Um, I spoke to Linda Greening, who's the head of inclusivity at Hartbury, and she has been talking to Landex, which is land-based colleges and universities aspiring to excellence, and the outcome being that they're, they're working together and all these different universities and colleges, and they're the ones who offer um, land-based courses, including the equestrian courses. And they've been passing the details on to their participation people as they try to, um, she understands a lot of them have been challenged to address the high proportion of white students that are going to the colleges. And they're, they're working on an action plan and, and what they can take from that, and working especially with local communities. So St. James City Farm in Gloucester, Ebony Horse Club in Brixton, the colleges are sort of working with them to provide possibly some progression that has been maybe missing in the past which is great and I know that you also spoke to Sandra Murphy who is the BAME equine and rural activities focus group founder what did she say about what's happening well, she she's um, said Linda has been doing fantastic work and actually Linda is also the education liaison officer with the birth group. Um, and she has also been working with British Equestrian in their equality engagement group and some of the member bodies. So they've got a birth member on the front of the Pony Club handbook. They've also been working with a leading uh, clothing and equipment brand, not only on using birth members for models, but also on things that maybe might you might not have thought about, like the colour of skin colour chin straps on a hat for example so it really seems like some really positive steps are being taken mm, that's an interesting one actually it's one that's come up in my other life I do quite a lot of amateur theatre and um, we've had discussions about microphones when um, actors are wearing head microphones that those should be an appropriate skin colour and the need to, to order them in appropriate skin colours for the cast that you have and um, Eleanor finally on this story there's a new opportunity in racing as well isn't there um, yeah, so this is a, a new academy, which is called the Riding a Dream Academy, which is named after uh, the documentary that followed Khadija Mella 
from her and she was an ebony horse club rider and she went on to win the magnolia cup at goodwood uh two nearly two years ago and she became the first british muslim woman to win a, a race in the uk and they're now having a khadija mella scholarship which so they'll take on eight teenagers they'll do a week and then 11 more weekends at the british racing school they'll have work experience with trainers they'll get qualified and then there's also the residential week for less experienced riders and the aim being to to give them that introduction to the racing industry that they might not otherwise have had and, and one thing that Khadija said which I thought really said a lot she said racing changed my life forever and she hopes this academy will change other people's lives too. Mm, really interesting and good stuff there thank you Eleanor. Now coming back to you Lucy you've been looking at a story about driving licenses what's this one all about? So this one is about, it's a bit of a reminder really, that when you get to the age of 70 and you have to renew your license, it's just making people aware that it doesn't necessarily renew all the categories that you previously held on it. So there is a possibility there for someone to be caught out if they've been driving a small lorry, you know, above three and a half tonne, up to seven and a half tonne, um, that they might suddenly realise that that category is no longer on their license when they renew it. So it's more of a reminder rather than than a breaking news but it's it's a pretty important one so the crucial point here is that when drivers renew their license they're not notified that some categories such as small horse boxes have not been automatically renewed is that right well the dvla say that they are but it is quite small print and there's no harm in reminding people so we have heard of people not being aware of this has happened. So, and it's not it's not an extensive, you don't need to do a new test or anything like that, but there are separate forms to fill in. Um, and it is just, it's important that you do those because yeah, the consequences of driving without the correct license are, are pretty serious. Mm, and as well as those forms to fill in, I think there is a medical exam, is that right? So yes, as I said, the process to retain all parts of your license, it doesn't require another test, um, but it does involve filling out a form that you need to get via the government website, which isn't the same as the as the form you'd be filling in to just renew your driving license uh, or the post office, plus a medical exam. Um, and that must be done to keep on driving legally. Thank you, Lucy. That's a very useful reminder for anybody approaching their 70th birthday. And thank you to Eleanor for joining us today too. So now we're going over to Jason Webb, a trainer who specialises in starting young horses and retraining those with problems. Born in Australia, Jason is now based in Kent and his online training service at yourhorsemanship.com means owners around the world can learn from and benefit from his techniques. Over to you, Jason. In this episode, we're going to talk about hosing your horse off. This seemingly simple exercise can cause a lot of frustration when your horse moves around to avoid being hosed. And there really is a simple answer to solving this problem. As with all groundwork issues, it starts with being able to control your horse. The first thing I like to be able to do is be able to move my horse's hind end around me. The next thing I need to be able to do for this exercise is just keep my horse roughly out of my personal space. Now, when you introduce a horse to a hose, as with anything you introduce that's new, it has to be done consistently. So I see a lot of people introducing a horse to a hose by turning it on 
and just letting it run by them for a little bit and letting them look at the hose. Now, eventually your horse will become familiar with it, but for some horses, this can be something that they become familiar with so long as you leave it just there. Don't bring it any closer to me. And also when a horse is looking at something that they're not sure about, it goes through a process of, I'm not sure what that is, and I'm gonna be a little bit cautious or anxious about it. What inevitably happens when your horse reacts this way is you take your horse away or you take the hose away from your horse. The problem with this response from the handler is your horse relaxes when the horse behaves by moving away from the, from the object. So the next time you present the object, your horse moves away knowing that you, because of this behavior, will move the horse and take the pressure away from, away from them. This is a simple desensitizing exercise. And this is how horses see objects that they are worried about. And their behavior is regulated by, by how their movement affects the object that they're worried about. So with that in mind, I will turn the hose on, um, or even before that, I'll lengthen the hose out. So I've got a long length of hose, it's laying flat on the ground. I'll lead my horse around or push my horse in a really small walking lunge circle over the hose to the left and over the hose to the right. Once my horse has done this and they're comfortable about stepping over the hose, I'll turn the hose on and I'll put my finger over the end of the hose so it creates a fan type spray and then I'll turn it on my horse may look at it and be a little bit worried and I'll be prepared to direct direct my horse around this circle I've just taught them so I've got my horse my hose on my horse is I'm prepared to to bring around this circle and what I'll do is I'll put it straight onto the least sensitive area of the horse um, that I can access, which in this case is the horse's shoulder. So I'll start the spray, a nice, even, gentle spray, and I'll just bring it round and put it straight onto the horse's shoulder. And they may even jump a little. You just allow your horse to move around for about, for about one circle. They'll be a little bit flighty, and then they'll realize that it's just water and they'll start to slow down in their movement and it will start, they'll start to relax. Um, as they start to relax, they'll eventually stop. At the point your horse stops, take the hose away from them. What this does is tells your horse that if I stop moving, that hose goes away. Now, prepare yourself again. Get yourself about 45 degrees from your horse. So your horse, when you place the hose on them, is most likely to go forward and around that circle that you taught them. If they go backwards, again, just keep the spray, even if it's on the ground, it doesn't, you may not be able to keep, them, keep the spray on them, but just keep it on the ground by them until they stop going backwards, take it away, bring them back up to where you started, and repeat the process. It all comes back to that repetition. And once your horse 
starts to understand and you've prepped yourself, you'll put the hose back on again and your horse may only take half a circle before they stop. And then you, again, take away the hose, relax, give them a chance to think about it and repeat the process just on your horse's shoulder. Um, once you can spray your horse's shoulder and they're standing still, I would call that and do the same on the other side. I would call it a day and just pack them away. That's an introduction to being hosed. The next day, I use the same process to do other parts of the horse's body. And when it comes to the legs, I'll spray the legs until they put their foot on the ground and are not moving and take it away. Your horse will very quickly learn to stand still, patiently, while you hose them off. If your horse, just one last thing before I leave you to give that a try, if your horse, when you're going round on a circle, becomes too flighty and you feel like you can't control the situation, then it's okay to use that hind end control, which I spoke about at the beginning of this podcast, to swing your horse's hind end around off the circle so they're looking at you and stop the hose, reset yourself and start again. And when I say stop the hose, I mean just take the hose off your horse before starting again. If you can repeat this process a few times and getting to that point where your horse learns that to take the hose off them, they stand still very quickly you'll have a nice horse to hose. So I hope that's been useful for you, and not just in terms of understanding how to teach your horse to hose, but the psychology of how your horse learns to adapt to new objects. I hope that's been helpful. Good luck. Thank you, Jason. Next week, Jason will be back with us to talk about teaching horses to stand quietly while being mounted. I'll be talking to up-and-coming event rider Yasmin Ingham about her previous win in the Under-25 National Championships and her rides at Bicton Arena in the same class this year. Thank you for joining us today and wishing our podcast happy birthday. If you have friends who you think would like to listen to the podcast, please do share it on social media or rate and review in the apps so we can keep growing our podcast family. See you next week. The Horse and Hound Podcast is a Media Cage production.